Welcome back to Plenary Session, the podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Olivier. He should need no introduction. He's the great guest of the show and a popular audience favorite because Timothy inserts common sense and dignity. He brings it back to this show. Dig- hi, Timothy, hi, it's great to hi, see you. Hi, Vinay. Nice for the kind introduction. I think you are, you are, you are going a bit too far, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I what love, are we talking I love about? Being, I love being on the show, yeah. What are we talking, talking about Talking with today? you. Yeah. So today is a malignant book club. I think uh, people are waiting for the book club. And now it's a few few months, maybe a few, yeah, few weeks, few months. So <laughs> what, we what chapter did we leave off on? So, so now I think it's really the, um, the, the key part, solutions. So it's episode nine of our, you know, our different videos. And it's um, chapter 13. How should cancer drug development proceed? So maybe to, I remember in the, uh, because I, you know, I prepared this uh, book club, so I read it again. And you start with an experiment and you wrote about that, about how bad the system is currently. And you made some calculation, how one drug costs to, you know, to, to, to make, to run a trial, what is the, average revenue for one drug and you make a kind of experiment if if we test a hundred drugs with no efficacy with no activity what i mean how the system is currently incentivized can you talk about this experiment or you want me to talk about it i think i remember it so this was a paper we published in nature reviews clinical oncology called low value something about low value approvals incentivize bad practices, something to that effect. But the gist of the argument was the following. This FDA has made it very clear that you can get drug approval even if you have negative randomized trials as long as one trial has a significant p-value. A good example of that is uh, sunitinib in metastatic RCC, where it has an adjuvant approval. Sorry, sunitinib in adjuvant RCC. Um, On the basis of one trial, it received U.S. FDA approval. Uh... Another example, or another point, is that it doesn't matter how big the magnitude of benefit is. Neratinib was approved based on a trivial improvement in IDFS, and erlotinib was approved in pancreas cancer based on a 10-day OS benefit. Yeah. Okay, so one trial only, trivial benefit accepted, p-value 0.05, that's all you need. The next part of the argument is that cancer drugs, when they come to market, They make huge windfalls, like $12 billion a year is the net expected earnings. Sorry, $12 billion life cycle is the net expected earnings of a cancer drug. So now you got three things. Just one trial. Doesn't matter if others are negative. Just one p-value. Doesn't matter what the benefit is. And if you get to market, you make a fortune. So then the thought experiment was, is it actually financially lucrative to take 100 compounds that are inert things that just don't do anything, like I use the example, I think spices, turmeric mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know cumin and all these spices. You take 100 inert substances, you run 100 randomized controlled trials, you would be crazy to do it because of course um, you know they don't do anything and it's expensive to run trials, but because of what a p-value is, tw- which is the- tw- 22 million dollars. That's the, that's the number in, we used. The, yeah, 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 yeah. But, okay. uh, but our analysis is true even if you put 50 million in per trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, then uh, um, you, 
the, you, you accept the nominally significant p-value, which basically means that if you repeated the experiment of an inert substance over and over again, what's the probability you would see this distribution, this extreme or result or more extreme? And we use a p-value of 0.05. For the sake of our argument, we use one tail, which actually was the case in modified PFS with echelon one. Anyway, we used a one tail p-value of 0.05, which is true, been accepted by FDA. And basically what that means is five out of 100 of these spices will have a false positive result. And then we'd say, hypothetically, the FDA would approve those. They'd all make billions of dollars each. So is it actually financially lucrative to run a portfolio of ineffective compounds? And our paper argues that it is actually under mm -hmm. current constraints. Mm -hmm. And then the final point, I do not think this is actually happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think drug companies are actually testing useless things. But what I do think it shows you is they don't have to be much better to be winners. And yeah. that's where we are. Yeah. I think it's a very good in introduction to this whole part because we will be talking a lot about incentives. I think it's, uh, it's, it's a lot about incentives. So how the trialists, which are nowadays mostly industry-sponsored trials, how they can be incentivized to run this or this trial. Um, the next point you make in this uh, chapter is, uh, what, is uh, what are the thresholds to go from phase one to two to three? And we published some work recently. Um, uh, we published a, a work describing phase two trials with uh, Alison uh, Aslam also. And can you maybe briefly talk about that? Uh, is it clear how, you know, is there, are, are, there, are there clear incentivized to go from phase one to two, two to three? What is the current system? Yeah. I guess there are examples of drugs that move from phase one straight to phase three. There are a number of portfolio analyses that we've been running over the summer that we're going to be publishing soon. Um, back to uh, what are the thresholds? I mean, I think it's important to remind the readers what are the goals of these studies. A phase one study, the goal is to find MTD, the maximum tolerated dose, uh, or to know that uh, there is no MTD so we can carry forward at whatever dose we think is biologically optimal. Um, there's been a lot of reforms lately to talk about biological optimal dose rather than maximal tolerated dose. Mm. The goal of a phase two is to have some measure of efficacy, that it has some activity against the cancer. I should say activity, not efficacy. And then the goal of yeah. a phase three is to show that it's actually better than some alternative. Um, because the incentives are skewed, the companies have very little incentive to only carry forward compounds that are truly promising. They carry forward compounds that may be less desirable, less promising. And so you see these bold jumps, phase one to phase three, like Everlimus and HCC. You see that phase two trials may be equivocal or negative, and yet they move forward. You can see mm. a drug has zero activity in phase one and phase two, and they still move it forward with mm. like elotuzumab. And then it starts to fail all the time, and the trials don't make any sense. And nobody entertains the null hypothesis that elo just doesn't work. Instead, they construct alternative hypotheses. Let's just take Avastin. In colon cancer, they tell you, oh, it didn't work in Folfox because Folfox is strong. That's the SALTS paper. It does work with IFL because IFL is weak. That's the Mitch Hurwitz paper. The other alternative is that you're just seeing ch chance and noise, which is what we've argued in one of our papers. So is that what you're getting at, or is there something else yeah, you yeah, want to absolutely, say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think the next part is, uh, is really interesting, and, and also you remind in this uh, chapter that your points should be you know, should be va validated. I mean, you, you are not saying that it's true, but you are, you are making a proposal which drug should be pursued. And you start with single agent activity.
can you talk about that and ma maybe i can remind you but I, i'm sure you you you, you know the other points by <coughs> by how yeah i mean i guess i guess the points that that i n remember are you know single agent activity that means you take people with measurable disease and you give them the drug and the question is does it shrink the tumor and just because you shrink the tumor doesn't necessarily mean they live longer or better but if you don't shrink the tumor well what the hell are you doing that's the question what the hell are you doing and the reason i say what the hell are you doing is that single agent activity is a useful litmus test of what to carry forward that's why mortel created the response rate that's one two drugs that don't have single agent activity mostly fail in drug development and the few that make it to market have a median os of 1.6 months so if you come to market without single-agent activity, the median OS of those drugs is 1.6 months, which is even lower than the already low 2.1 months of all drugs, you know? They're the worst of the worst. So do we really want to pursue? The other thing is every drug has no single-agent activity. I mean, you could, you could, everything, every compound, most compounds don't have activity. They don't shrink tumors. So are you going to really suggest we test every compound on the planet and all the compounds we can make all to get a few of those drugs through that have 1.6 month survival benefits? Or might we be better off focusing on the active drugs, which tend to be a little bit better, and maybe even better off by raising the meaningful benefit standards? Okay, so next point. Which, which come first? Which, <coughs> uh, on which patient you should first test your, your, your new uh, compound? Yeah. yeah. I guess this is a portion of the chapter where I argue, and I guess one of the points you're trying to make is that everything in the chapter I'm saying, take my idea and subject it to rigorous appraisal. Yeah. But yeah. The, so the, the, these are sort of hypothesized solutions. One is that, you know, it doesn't make sense to be running a new drug application, a new, a new molecular entity, NME, NME drugs in frontline settings. The, the right place to test a new drug is in a relapse refractory setting. Prove to me it has an OS benefit. You'll find it as quick as possible. Like pentarefractory myeloma, you can have OS benefits within a year. And then if it works there, start giving it there and then gradually test how much earlier you need to give it to maximize the benefit versus giving it later. This is the, the optimal approach philosophically, ethically, morally, statistically to drug development. And in that chapter, I outline that it doesn't make sense to test pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane, Cleopatra frontline. It makes sense to do it in a second or third line first and then ask if you need to march it up. And proof of this is, Timothy, just this year at ASCO, we have a study of cyclone 4-6 kinase inhibitors in combination mm. with, the, with the aromatase yeah. inhibitor that shows you get the same, what, PFS2, Sonia, Sonia. Sonia yeah. from reserving it for later. And yet... In that case, the companies did do second line first, but then they did first line very aggressively with poor crossover. They didn't ask this question. Had they run the proper series of events, we mm. would have been in a Sonia situation five years ago and saved a lot of money and saved a lot of toxicity because nobody wants to be on Palbo if they don't need to be on Palbo, if they don't benefit mm. from being on Palbo. Yeah. And maybe can you remind the, 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 the listeners this, uh, you know, it, it goes back to the chapter of basic principles in oncology. When you show that compound that do work in advanced setting you know be between adjuvant and advanced setting so usually okay, I, I just let, let you explain you made a see what I mean or yeah no I think that okay. the basic principle is that every single drug that's used in the adjuvant treatment of any cancer 
is also used in the metastatic treatment of a cancer. Every drug that's used in the metastatic treatment of a cancer, only one in three are used in the adjuvant treatment. It's a lot harder to make an adjuvant drug that eradicates microscopic disease than it is to make a drug that can shrink cancer and ergo improve survival. It's an easier biological hurdle. Because of this principle, this basic principle of cancer, uh, it is more intuitive to pursue drugs first in metastatic settings and then try for adjuvant and not vice versa. You may in fact abandon drugs that could have a role in a relapse setting by going too early where it is actually statistically harder, yeah, numerically yeah. harder, and biologically sometimes, at least if you get the adjuvant space, harder to eke out benefits. And also you, you make the point, I think this, this, this point about in which patient you, you should try first your, your agent is, is really, really powerful because as you said, then you don't have any excuse not to choose overall survival. Right. Um, you can also include, you know, broad, broad, your patient broadly, like in your clinic, not not with very very huge and very selective uh, thresholds. So maybe you can talk about that also. Yeah. And yeah. Well, this was codified into a follow up paper that I published in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology since the book was published uh, with uh, Banerjee, and that was on uh, uh, pragmatic randomized control trials for cancer drug approval, like recovery. And the basic idea was the following. Um, the doctor in the clinic cares if the drug works for the patient in the clinic, but the clinical trials care if the drug works for the Olympian cancer patient, the person who's otherwise really fit. How do we get the information we need for everybody, for the Olympians, but also for the regular people? And the trial that we proposed was, let's learn from COVID-19 recovery. Let's run a large randomized multi-center study where there's a tiny subgroup of the super fit people where we look for efficacy in the fit subgroup, but then we also look for efficacy in everybody in all comers. And this way we can answer, you know, does that drug that works in the Olympian, is it extrapolatable to my 80 year old in clinic? And that's, so that came since the book was written, but the book was getting at that principle, which yeah. is that you need the trial patients to some degree reflect real world. So you know, yeah. the results can be applied in the real world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And also you demonstrated with uh, Chen that Usually, uh, in the advanced setting, you don't really save time by using other endpoints. That's absolutely true. Once you get past second line, response rate does not result faster than overall survival because people forget you have to wait for the responses, then you have to wait for the median DOR or wait for to know the median DOR is not reached. Only then you can have data for FDA, whereas if you run a randomized control trial, overall survival can always happen. And we show empirically that it is not the case that surrogates save time past second line that's the perp that's that's shown in the chen paper in jam internal medicine yeah can you talk a bit a bit about how to advance drugs in other settings how do you see the logical steps in uh, in in drug development yeah so i mean long before people cared about post protocol care this book kind of explained that you know once you establish the drug works in the last line you have to give it to people in the last line and then the randomized trial has to be, is it better to give in the second line or the third line? Better give in the first line or the second line? You have to gradually ask, is giving more people sooner the drug better than the current standard of care, which is reserving it for relapse? And that is about crossover. That's about the work you did on post-protocol care that we talked yeah. about on this podcast. That is the key question. Um, so, you know, that principle of the logic of it, you know, was outlined in Malignant 
and now I see, you know, a lot of people yeah. like it. You know, it's actually yeah. getting, you know, they're, they're writing papers yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but it, it, you know, that, it, it comes from that book, I think, that chapter, yeah. You also talk about dose, and I, I had the, the really the same feeling because uh, I think in the past, you know, with one product of chemotherapy, they used to test it in, in many ways, you know, uh, for, in, for instance, 5-FU and all this kind of thing. And what do you think about those? How we can improve upon upon what is going on right now? Wh what would be your suggestion? Or yeah, I saw recently somebody had a tweet by a famous oncologist that said, "Once the drugs they approved, the best research on the drug happens." It's like the fuck are you? I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Once it's approved, it's usually shitty research that happens. It's like seeding trials and bad research. Um, and the point there about doses is that we approve drugs at doses that are very difficult for people to take. The amount of dose optimization that we do before approving a drug is piss poor. The FDA knows this. They're running some Project Optimus or whatever their stupid names are to try to improve drug dosing. But what I propose is that, look, almost every single person with cancer could be as part of a randomized study. You could randomize them to the starting dose of the drug per package label or a different starting dose ramp up or a higher starting dose ramp down or you can always be doing randomized studies around dose optimization. We haven't even scratched the surface. Like, you know, this is a landscape we've not even explored. It's like coming on a new planet and just standing in one spot. We've not even walked around. You got to walk around, get a, get a sense of the terrain. And so dose exploration in oncology is very bad. And the truth is, there's that old quote by Paracelsus, the difference between a poison and a drug is the dose. You know, I'm paraphrasing. Mm, mm. Um, but what makes, a, what makes a medicine? It's the dose. You know, what makes a poison? It's the dose. Um, yeah. And that's true. We really don't know much about the doses yeah. that we're giving. And, and as you know, in real life, many of us don't give exactly the doses yeah, yeah, yeah. that they gave. Who's I giving? A, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's a very interesting point because... And it's again about the incentives because now yeah. the, the drug is on the market and, and I really feel that 30 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, where there were, you know, little compounds and, and oncologists really tried to get the best from, the, from, from one or two or three. You know, we, we had limited cytotoxic chemotherapy and they, they really want to get the best from it. And I feel that this is not uh, the case anymore. Even if there are research, I, I don't say that they are not research at all. But yeah, I, I feel we are really at the at a very deceiving level of making the right dose for the right patient. I think it's it's really a place where there should be a, a lot of improvement in the future. Yeah. It's 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 so bad. I mean, I think people don't understand just how bad it is and how easy it would be to solve. I mean, in a few pragmatic studies, we could optimize the dosing for a lot of different drugs. And there may even be like, who's there may even be real overall survival benefits that are being lost because of inadequate, in yeah, suboptimal yeah, dosing. Yeah, Nobody even yeah. knows. Yeah. It, it's funny because getting a new drug on market with an uncontrolled phase two study will help your career. Doing the hard work of having a pragmatic dose randomized study mm, mm. it's not going to help you know as much and um so it's not done it's sad mm. the last point you make is uh you know working uh, i know uh, there were several works you published after the book that, that are very very interesting but about biomarkers um how could could we refine biomarkers and i think it's uh, it's also a very important point and we are often frustrated because we feel that 
we feel that there could be a biomarker to select which patient benefit from which patient do not benefit. But yeah, can you talk a bit about that? I think uh, again, it's about incentives. Yeah. It's like the company's goal is to get the drug approved in the largest market share with the smallest numerical benefit. Even if that means there's a subgroup that you could identify with biomarkers that's deriving no benefit or even harm. And they have no incentive to find those subgroups. And everyone is spending all this time on quote unquote finding targets for new drugs to add on therapy. The amount of incentive being placed to find subgroups for existing drugs where those groups don't benefit on average or are harmed is so little. And the great example is the PD-1 and the thresholds, et cetera. Yeah. No one is interested in trying to identify non-responders. Rather, yeah, you, they, they'd give triple therapy to GBM. You saw that on Twitter. They're giving triple immunotherapy to GBM yeah. Yeah. For, with no data, but they're not interested in identifying the majority of people with lung cancer who don't respond to Pembro. You know, they're not yeah. interested in that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's a huge topic. So next, the next point is... Um, your proposal of how should trial be st structured. And you start with randomization and overall survival, and you speak also about what what does that mean, that the skewed randomization. Can you talk about that? I, I know you, you have work ongoing, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, one-to-one -one randomization is the optimal statistical power. One-to-two randomization, you need 12% more participants. You start to do skewed randomization because you think it's going to entice people to enroll on your study, and you also think that fewer people will be exposed to the ultimately ineffective arm. Uh, we're exploring all these things. We already published one paper showing that skewed randomization is not an enticement. It doesn't make people enroll faster. That's the paper by Junai. Christina that we published, that I did. Um, uh, we also know that skewed randomization is suboptimal. It's wasting patients. It takes more patients to do. We're going to have some more papers coming on skewed randomization. Um, I don't want to spoil those papers, but what yeah, else do yeah. I say in the chapter? I forget what um, I said. So, yeah, yeah. So, no, I think basically you are making the points you are, you are usually making about the control arm should be a fair arm. The dose should be fair. We published in the book, uh, but you, you already worked on that before, and um, and we we show that in s in in many cases actually the imbalance in dose adjustment and dose uh, dose uh, uh, modification was uh, an issue in uh, comparative trials, and you also um, speak about uh, the importance of a blinding even more in an uh, endpoint like overall survival, uh, overall response rate or PFS. Explain the importance that. Of, yeah, the importance of blinding in overall response rate and PFS. I mean, I think it is important even, because... Ev even, even more than, yeah. I overall, think, than yeah, overall yeah, survival, yeah. 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 Although recently, Todd Lee gave me grief and he says you need blinding even for overall survival. And I think he's right to some degree because it can confound the receipt of subsequent therapies. Mm -hmm. But but I don't think that the blinding can inherently affect the endpoint. But with PFS, it can. You know the patient's on placebo. You might be much more likely to declare PFS has been met to pull him off the study so you can give him some therapy. Yeah, you know, yeah. very likely to happen, yeah. Yeah, we published this work about duration of treatment over yes. time. Yeah, yes. over time. When, when, when Explain it that from, paper, yeah. Yeah. So this, this paper was led by Alison Aslam and 
basically she she showed that in many instances when the drug is first tested as an experimental drug and later as a control drug the duration of treatment will tend to be shorter so this really talk about the incentive of pushing the drug when when the patient is on the control arm and when it's on open label and maybe you will be incentivized to you know not to push so much uh, the drug because you w you would expect the contrary you would expect that over time you can manage the safety the toxicity better you can manage the drug better so the duration of treatment in the same setting I, I'm, I'm talking about the same setting yeah. duration of treatment should be longer and longer but it, in many instances it was not the case yeah. like an imbrave imbrave 150 serafinib is given for like a third of what it was given in the original sharp yeah, study yeah. i mean yeah, uh, yeah. and, and sharp Lenva. reflect yeah and imbrave it is going shorter and shorter yeah, yeah. Wh whereas the the narrative is we are quote unquote better at ma and managing serafinib toxicity so we should be giving it more but we're yeah. giving it less which yeah. suggests why are we giving it less because it's no longer uh, the drug uh, that's running uh, this company. Uh, the study. And, 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 and to be honest, to be honest, I think, you know, th there can be unconscious bias from yes. the, the, the trialist. I mean, the trialist maybe wants to test a new drug. Maybe there is a crossover. I don't know. Maybe you think about another, you know, yeah. there is also a, a kind of unconscious bias. It's not, you know, the fault of the investigator to do that. But uh, I think that's why blind, blinding is very important. Absolutely true. Can you talk a bit about the power? I think it's a very, very interesting topic because people, okay, I, I would say maybe, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if it's true, but people may think that to have a huge power is good. Is it true? Yeah. Is it true? Yeah, the purpose of this it's chapter. A tricky, it's a tricky, <laughs> not really tricky, but yeah. It talks about sort of the Goldilocks idea of power. There can be too hot, yeah. too cold, and just right. Um, and what that means is that in oncology, you can definitely have underpowered studies. The phase two study of olaritumab was underpowered, Lartrufo, and it found a uh, spurious benefit on a non-primary endpoint. Yeah. So underpowered studies have two problems. One, they fail to find benefits that really do exist. Two, when they do find a benefit, it's much more likely to be a false positive or exaggerated, as in that case. That's the problem with underpowering studies. Yeah. The problem. I, I, yeah. Can, can, yeah. Can you explain this more? Because I think this is a, a an underappreciated point that underpower can lean, lead to false positive also. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think everyone knows underpowered means you could miss something. That's the easy yeah. part. Yeah. But if you sit down and make two by two tables and think about pretest probability, power, and alpha, you will also conclude that underpowered means you're more likely to have false positive results yeah. as well. Yeah. And that's an important finding because when you do a phase two study with the primary endpoint of stringent CR and you find an OS benefit you weren't looking for, you're going to publicize it. If you did the same study and you find an OS decrement you weren't looking for, you're going to say, that's not important. So you're combining underpowered false positive results with the sort of human desire to believe and your financial conflicts, as we saw with Pola BR, you know, that phase two. Um, uh, uh, and as we saw with Lartruvo, so when somebody shows me a phase two study, non-primary endpoint, I don't put much stock in it mm. at all, and they shouldn't mm. either. Mm. Now let's do the overpower. Yeah, overpower. Yeah. In oncology, you can be powered to find statistically significant differences that are clinically meaningless, and the great example of that is, you know, 
neratinib. The great example of that is erlotinib in pancreas cancer. The great example of that is... yeah. Which one? 10 days, yeah. No, no, yeah, 10 days, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, all of these studies, many, many breast cancer studies are overpowered. Pertuzumab yeah. and adjuvant. There's thousands and thousands of women to eke out some statistically significant triviality. Yeah. Um, so you're finding was, statistically yeah. significant but not clinically meaningful outcomes. Yeah, what do you it, say? it was demonstrated that the, the sample size and power is grow, growing and growing over time. Yes, it, power and sample size are growing over time. Can you talk about RCT of rare disease and, and the topic of rare disease and maybe the broader topic of what is called a non-met need because uh, that's uh, also a regulatory, regulatory um, issue. Um, you give an example, I think it's a very interesting example um, in a rare cancer, but you, you also said, say that uh, in some cases we could, you know, we could avoid the rules you were saying in very, very rare a situation in real unmet needs. So how, how would you define that? What is your... Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So unmet need refers to the fact that in order to get accelerated approval, the FDA can only grant those in spaces that are thought to have an unmet need. But what counts as an unmet need is vague, and they get to say what it is, and I don't think they have much empirical basis for what they say. In this paper, what we did was we asked in the literature, when doctors say there's an unmet medical need, how much of that unmet medical need, is, or, you know, what's the situation? And so we looked at three indices. One, is it common or rare? Two, are there a lot of treatment options or few? And three, does it have a dire survival or is the survival pretty good? And we found people definitely call unmet medical need if survival is short, you have few options, and it affects few people. So I would call that an unmet medical need. But they also say unmet medical need when it's extremely common. There are 90 plus NCCN options and survival is long on the order of five mm. years, 10 years or decades. So they mm. have no standard. They're happy to call anything an unmet medical need in order to take advantage of the regulatory proviso. Um, you know, and we saw the same with EUA, the emergency use authorization being used mm. in groups that don't have an emergency. Mm. You know, it's the same sort of mm. problem, mm. yeah. Mm. Can you give the example? I think it's a very, very good example. The adrenocortical cancer and the FIRM ACT trial. You remember this uh, trial? Very no, tell, tell me the... It's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a ultra rare cancer. Oh, yes. Adrenocortical yeah, yeah. cancer. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then the second point to make is that um, in the FDA's own analysis, as the incidence of a tumor becomes rarer from 1 in 100,000 to 6 in 100,000, sorry, from 6 in 100,000 to 1 in 100,000, one would expect a five-fold reduction in randomization because you're going from some, something that's five in 100,000 to one-fifth is common, you know? But what you actually find is that randomization occurs at the exact same rate in all those categories, suggesting that at those levels of rarity, randomization is not sensitive to incidence. And also bolstering the claim that the presence of randomization is not sensitive to incidence is the idea that in adrenal cortical cancer, which is 0.7 per million people, you have good randomized data called FIRM-ACT, which is a New England Journal paper, where I think Tito is a co-author, of, of two different chemotherapy strategies. So if mm. we really wanted to, like with polycythemia vera, if we really wanted to, like with amyloid and you know uh, daratumumab, we can do randomized studies in rare diseases. The reason is we don't do it. It's not that it's rare. It's that we don't want to. 
Look at primary CNS lymphoma. We've barely done it. And can you talk a bit more about that? What is uh, what do you think is the hurdle? Why why people aren't able to you know collaborate more internationally? You talk about the culture of publishing. I, I think it's a it's a real hurdle. You know, publish or perish, and you want to be first or last author. You want to have your your group, your patient. Your I think it's a hurdle. You, you also talk about. Uh, who should design the trial? Sh should it be non-conflicted parties? And, and I think it's a really, really important point of this chapter. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think you said it, which is that the professional incentive is not to collaborate on phase threes, but rather do phase twos by yourself. You will definitely have a better career if you do phase twos and use it to get people to change their practice by yourself than you will by being middle author on phase three studies. And so as a result, I think, the professional incentive is warped. The NCI is not actually trying to get people to collaborate. They're trying to get them all to do their uncontrolled phase twos. That's a problem. Um, and what was the next part of your thing? Uh, the next part of my thing, who should design the, the trial? Yeah. yeah, I mean, people getting paid from the drug company, probably not. It should be people, they should be allowed to give their input, their clinical expertise, but the people who vote on the final design should be non-conflicted methodologists. And I think this mm. bleeds into a future chapter that we'll talk yeah, about yeah. probably in the next video. Next, yeah, next chapter will be chapter. Uh, uh, actually, this chapter is is um, is finished. But maybe you want to conclude and to make general points. Next chapter will be what can three federal agencies could do tomorrow. Um, this will be chapter fourteen. But yeah, I think you 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 are making a propose a proposal and. and as usual, because you are you are you are like that. You say just te test my proposal. I don't say that's you know the gold standard, but you should test it, and that's that's the reason why I, I propose it. And I think it's very appealing uh, to me. And um, what would be your general conclusion? I think it's, it's a lot about incentive. The the current system yeah. system is not incentivized to to hire the bar for drugs to be on the market. I would say. Yeah, well, I want to know all your thoughts on it. But I would say that you're right. This is a chapter about the incentives. And it's really trying to encourage the reader to think bigger than what they've been told. I mean, this whole book is about trying to get you to think about things that people don't tell you. People tell you, we can't do randomized trials because they take too long, people would die. That's a lie. They First of mm. all, they just repeat something they heard. They've never asked, actually thought about whether or not it might be true or not. We did do this study, it's in JAMA IM, we prove it's not true in the third line and beyond. So why do they say it's true? They don't know what they're talking about. It's actually, the scariest thing to me is how smart people will repeat things. And that's, that's why drug companies can you know, fill mm. the literature with mm. bits of propaganda mm. and it gets propagated. That's not true. Then the next question is, how would you design these studies if you really cared about maximizing patient welfare, minimizing drug usage, all things being equal, and minimizing cost, and it's exactly the way I propose. You do randomized trials in the last line first, OS benefit, get the drug on the market quick, maximize the scale of that, then gradually test it sooner and see how much you have to give to how many people to maximize OS across this whole question. We don't live in that world. We live in a very different world with warped incentives. Some people will and, say, yeah. yeah, go on. No, you, I think, I think yeah. the important point here, because sometimes people say you're, that uh, this research is, you know, raising you know crit critical things about trials and and you know but here first there are a lot of solutions but also the idea behind is if you apply this the research will be better and this yeah. will be better for patients 
at the end at the end of the day i mean that, that's we care uh, that's why we we do what we do and i think it I, yeah yeah Go a fault a false criticism of my work is that you just point out problems you don't point out the solution in the next four chapters you will hear the whole solution i've solved it mm. all for you mm. it's all solved mm. Mm. okay look of course it should be tested empirically unintended consequences may occur i also say that but mm -hmm. i have solved the conceptual issues for you the reason why you don't think about that that often is that people aren't ready to, and you know you talk about the single agent activity of course those drugs should be deprioritized why are those drugs prioritized because they're making so much money from even mm -hmm. false positives mm -hmm. that's why look at elo does elo look like a drug that actually works mm -hmm. not to me it, if you look at the portfolio of ELO trials, it looks like a shit, a pile of shit. It's a shit drug that doesn't work. But why does it work sometimes and not other times? You could go to the laboratory and pipette, but the one thing you're missing is chance. It's called statistical noise. The mm. statistics are built around one trial. They're not built around these huge portfolios, which we're going to talk about in the future. We'll talk about mm. that in the chapter. Um, so, But nobody wants to entertain these hypotheses that... ELO is probably not worth pursuing and that there is a better way to do myeloma studies and there's a better way to do all these things. Um, of course, you see it with uh, everything's an unmet medical need. Everything needs to be approved yesterday. Everything needs to be approved based on uncontrolled studies. Why, do we why don't we ask, why do we have so many uncontrolled studies? Well, they're good for our career. I think that's a big reason. Mm -hmm. um, so you're right. This chapter is about incentives. This book is about, you know, I think I say in the beginning, like realigning cancer care to do what's best for patients. Mm. It's not criticism for the sake of criticism. It's criticism for the sake of improvement. And as I say, I think in the, in the introduction of the book, you know, everyone is trying to optimize biology. We haven't even optimized the sociology of oncology, the, mm. human, the policy we haven't optimized. How many life years are we losing because we won't optimize the policy around drug dosing and randomization, yeah, et cetera? Yeah. It might be more than what biology would give us. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, a kind of general idea of your book, yeah. Okay, so, I don't know so if you have... I, no, yeah. I want to know, I yeah, know yeah. What, you, what do you think of this chapter? How did it fit in your... Yeah, Yeah. I mean, this chapter is containing a lot of things that um, I, you know, I... I use uh, like uh, you know automatically now in my appraisal of uh, of current trials, and I'm convinced by honestly by all the points. Um, what I what I what I feel is really you know how to modify that, how to modify the the, the incentives, how to modify the system for for instance of of publish or perish, um, and we will get uh, we'll come to this in the next chapters. For me, as you say, uh, the 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 diagnostic is pretty clear. The problem is pretty clear. But also, if you want to, to improve upon something, you have to be clear about what are the causes of the problem. I think th that's the main idea of the, of the book. If you don't identify them, if you say everything is okay, you, you, won't, you won't be able to improve upon that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, the goal of this book is to get people to change the practice and change oncology. I would say that maybe since I wrote it, I used to think it could be fixed from within the profession. Certainly, the book has inspired a lot of people to do similar work, and mm. they're you know, carrying the ideas forward, mm. um, occasionally citing the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, okay, not okay. always. Not I always, agree. but occasionally, occasionally citing okay, where, they got, where they got the idea from. But okay, um, so that's one way. But meanwhile, there's been a deeper resistance to the ideas of the book, a more fortified resistance, They've created the ASCO essential voices list where they 
remove anyone who has these kind of heretical ideas. Mm. It's like anything. It's like any reformation of any church. The church doesn't want to reform, and they try to expunge the heretics. Uh, mm. The difference is that this is governed by reason and science, so they cannot you know, hold that dam up. You know, they can't maintain that forever. Um, but I, sometimes I am disillusioned, and I don't think the reform will come from the profession. I mm. think that uh, their tone policing has gotten too out of control. They'll say, well, it's not about what, it's, you know, you said Fruquitnib was unethical. That's hurtful for the feelings of the unethical investigators. I'm like, well, what about the people who are dead on the control mm. arm with, mm. you know, like do their feelings not, their, their mm. feelings are less important than the investigator? That's hard mm. to, for me to believe. So I do think increasingly, and I will talk about in the future chapters, governments will have to regulate this. I yeah. mean, the, the next chapters are about drug, how will government regulate this? And I think that's going to be the real deep solution. And, and, and I will, just to yeah, just make a segue or, or an introduction for yeah. the next chapter, I will challenge this idea because the idea is great, but how you can, how you can make this happen? I mean, that, that, it feels that it's almost impossible. That's yeah. the, the big question I will ask you on the next chapter. Yeah, I. It is a good question. How can you actually make it happen? And uh, yeah, my views on it have evolved a bit. But you know, *Malignant* came out in 2020. It's 2023. When did you read it? And you read it in the summer or uh, the spring? Immediately, what? summer. Yeah. And so, what was it like when you read it? I mean, you probably were thinking a oh. lot of these things. Oh yeah, I mean, I was following you already, and I was waiting for it. And enjoy it. I enjoy the the part of uh, princi basic principle of ecology, and um, I think since since then, you and also uh, I participated to that. You you do a lot of other works and you push the idea even even further. So so I really feel the book is um, we we could add many you know little things, but the core ideas are still the same. Yeah. Yeah, but I would that, say yeah. I think the best papers that have been done since the book are the ones that you've done. The post-protocol paper was great. Um, the paper on drug dosing, that was yeah. barely barely touched in the book, but the paper you published on that was amazing. And um, mechanism of action paper was an important one. Yeah, the stuff yeah, you did yeah. on censoring around melanoma, it was, you know, I, I, again, a lot of these things I had just touched, but, you know, you developed the empirical framework for. And we have hopefully someday we'll tell people the thing we're working on that's going to be really great. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's a secret. Thank you very much, Vinay, for doing the Malignant Book Club. Um, we, we have more installments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have more, and um, it should be. F yeah, we take we take we take the time to do each chapter. Uh, I think there are three chapter to be done. Okay. And uh, thanks for doing this, Timothy. On that on positive, positive note. note. <laughs> bye bye. Until next time.